Welcome to Nutting Memorial Library's presentation of Joseph Conrad's Lord Jim, a story of tragedy, adventure, and redemption that begins with a life-changing decision made by a young sailor in a moment of crisis. This podcast presents the text of Lord Jim as read from the original publication, available through Project Gutenberg. You can follow along in the text by clicking the link in our show notes. This is our sixth installment of Lord Jim, which includes chapters 12 and 13 for those following along in the text. Weekly episodes are released each Tuesday, so make sure you subscribe. With each episode, we recommend an article available via Nutting Library's electronic resources that provides insight on aspects of the novel, and we will also be sharing details about the historical context at the time of its publication via our social media accounts. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoy this sixth installment of Lord Jim. Chapter 12 All around, everything was still as far as the ear could reach. The mist of his feelings shifted between us, as if disturbed by his struggles, and in the rifts of the immaterial veil he would appear to my staring eyes, distinctive form and pregnant with vague appeal like a symbolic figure in a picture. The chill air of the night seemed to lie on my limbs as heavy as a slab of marble. I see, I murmured, more to prove to myself that I could break my state of numbness than for any other reason. The Avondale picked us up just before sunset, he remarked moodily. Steamed right straight for us. We had only to sit and wait. After a long interval, he said, they told their story, and again there was that oppressive silence. Then only I knew what it was I had made up my mind to, he added. You said nothing, I whispered. What could I say, he asked in the same low tone. Shock slight, stopped the ship, ascertained the damage, took measures to get the boats out without creating a panic. As the first boat was lowered, ship went down in a squall, sank like lead. What could be more clear? He hung his head. And more awful. His lips quivered while he looked straight into my eyes. I had jumped, hadn't I? He asked, dismayed. That's what I had to live down. The story didn't matter. He clasped his hands for an instant, glanced right and left into the gloom. It was like cheating the dead, he stammered. And there were no dead, I said. He went away from me at this. That is the only way I can describe it. In a moment, I saw his back close to the balustrade. He stood there for some time, as if admiring the purity and the peace of the night. Some flowering shrub in the garden below spread its powerful scent through the damp air. He returned to me with hasty steps. And that did not matter, he said, as stubbornly as you please. Perhaps not, I admitted. I began to have a notion he was too much for me. After all, what did I know? Dead or not dead, I could not get clear, he said. I had to live, hadn't I? Well, yes, if you take it in that way, I mumbled. I was glad, of course, he threw out carelessly, with his mind fixed on something else. The exposure, he pronounced slowly, and lifted his head. Do you know what was my first thought when I heard? I was relieved. I was relieved to learn that those shouts, did I tell you I had heard shouts? No? Well, I did. Shouts for help, blown along with the drizzle. Imagination, I suppose, and yet I can hardly... How stupid. The others did not. I asked them afterwards. They all said, no. No? And I was hearing them even then. I might have known, but I didn't think. I only listened. Very faint screams, day after day. Then that little half-caste chap here came up and spoke to me. The Patna, French gunboat, towed successfully to Aden, investigation, marine office, sailor's home, arrangements made for your board and lodging. I walked along with him, and I enjoyed the silence. So there had been no shouting, imagination. I had to believe him. I could hear nothing any more. I wonder how long I could have stood it. It was getting worse, too. I mean, louder. He fell into thought. And I had heard nothing. Well, so be it. But the lights, the lights did go. We did not see them. They were not there. If they had been, I would have swam back. I would have gone back and shouted alongside. I would have begged them to take me on board. I would have had my chance. You doubt me? How do you know how I felt? What right have you to doubt? I very nearly did it as it was. Do you understand? 
His voice fell. There is not a glimmer, not a glimmer, he protested mournfully. Don't you understand that if there had been, you would not have seen me here? You see me, and you doubt. I shook my head negatively. This question of the lights being lost sight of when the boat could not have been any more than a quarter of a mile from the ship was a matter for much discussion. Jim stuck to it that there was nothing to be seen after the first shower had cleared away, and the others had affirmed the same thing to the officers of the Avondale. Of course, people shook their heads and smiled. One old skipper who sat near me in court tickled my ear with his white beard to murmur, Of course they would lie. As a matter of fact, nobody lied, not even the chief engineer with his story of the masthead light dropping like a match you throw down. Not consciously, at least. A man with his liver in such a state might very well have seen a floating spark in the corner of his eye when stealing a hurried glance over his shoulder. They had seen no light of any sort, though they were well within range, and they could only explain this in one way. The ship had gone down. It was obvious and comforting. The foreseen fact coming so swiftly had justified their haste. No wonder they did not cast about for any other explanation. Yet the true one was very simple, and as soon as Briarly suggested it, the court ceased to bother about the question. If you remember, the ship had been stopped, and was lying with her head on the course steered through the night, with her stern canted high, and her bows brought low down in the water through the filling of the fore compartment. Being thus out of trim, when the squall struck her a little on the quarter, she swung head to wind as sharply as though she had been at anchor. By this change in her position, all her lights were in a very few moments shut off from the boat to leeward. It may very well be that, had they been seen, they would have had the effect of a mute appeal, that their glimmer lost in the darkness of the cloud would have had the mysterious power of the human glance that can awaken the feelings of remorse and pity. It would have said, I am here, still here. And what more can the eye of the most forsaken of human beings say? But she turned her back on them, as if in disdain of their fate. She had swung round, burdened, to glare stubbornly at the new danger of the open sea, which she so strangely survived to end her days in a breaking-up yard, as if it had been her recorded fate to die obscurely under the blows of many hammers. What were the various ends their destiny provided for the pilgrims I am unable to say, but the immediate future brought, at about nine o'clock next morning, a French gunboat homeward bound from Reunion. The report of her commander was public property. He had swept a little out of his course to ascertain what was the matter with the steamer floating dangerously by the head upon a still and hazy sea. There was an ensign, Union Down, flying at her main gaff. The sarong had the sense to make a signal of distress at daylight. But the cooks were preparing the food in the cooking boxes forward as usual. The decks were packed as close as a sheet pen. There were people perched all along the rails, jammed on the bridge in a solid mass, Hundreds of eyes stared, and not a sound was heard when the gunboat ranged abreast, as if all that multitude of lips had been sealed by a spell. The Frenchman hailed, could get no intelligible reply, and after ascertaining through his binoculars that the crowd on deck did not look plague-stricken, decided to send a boat. Two officers came on board, listened to the serang, tried to talk with the Arab, couldn't make head or tail of it, but of course the nature of the emergency was obvious enough. They were also very much struck by discovering a white man, dead and curled up peacefully on the bridge, for intrigue presque cadavre, as I was informed a long time after by an elderly French lieutenant whom I came across one afternoon in Sydney, by the merest chance, in a sort of café, and who remembered the affair perfectly. Indeed, this affair, I may notice in passing, had an extraordinary power of defying the shortness of memories and the length of time. It seemed to live with a sort of uncanny vitality in the minds of men, on the tips of their tongues. I've had the questionable pleasure of meeting it often, years afterwards, thousands of miles away, emerging from the remotest possible talk, coming to the surface of the most distant allusions. Has it not turned up tonight between us? And I am the only seaman here. I am the only one to whom it is a memory. And yet it has made its way out. But if two men who, unknown to each other, knew of this affair met accidentally on any spot of this earth, the thing would pop up between them as sure as fate before they parted. I had never seen that Frenchman before, and at the end of an hour we had done with each other for life. He did not seem particularly talkative either. He was a quiet, massive chap in a creased uniform, sitting drowsily over a tumbler half full of some dark liquid. 
His shoulder straps were a bit tarnished. His clean-shaved cheeks were large and sallow. He looked like a man who would be given to taking snuff, don't you know? I won't say he did, but the habit would have fitted that kind of man. It all began with his handing me a number of home news, which I didn't want, across the marble table. I said, Merci. We exchanged a few apparently innocent remarks, and suddenly, before I knew how it had come about, we were in the midst of it, and he was telling me how much they had been intrigued by that corpse. It turned out he had been one of the boarding officers. In the establishment where we sat, one could get a variety of foreign drinks, which were kept for the visiting naval officers, and he took a sip of the dark, medical-looking stuff, which probably was nothing more nasty than cassis à and glancing with one eye into the tumbler, shook his head slightly. Impossible de comprendre, vous concevez, he said, with a curious mixture of unconcern and thoughtfulness. I could very easily conceive how impossible it had been for them to understand. Nobody in the gunboat knew enough English to get hold of the story as told by the sarang. There was a good deal of noise, too, round the two officers. They crowded upon us. There was a circle round that dead man. Autour de ce mort, he described. One had to attend to the most pressing. These people were beginning to agitate themselves. Parbleu. A mob like that, don't you see? He interjected with philosophic indulgence. As to the bulkhead, he had advised his commander that the safest thing was to leave it alone. It was so villainous to look at. They got two hawsers on board promptly, on tutel, and took the patna in tow, stern foremost at that, which, under the circumstances, was not so foolish, since the rudder was too much out of the water to be of any great use for steering. And this maneuver eased the strain on the bulkhead, whose state, he expounded with stolid glibness, demanded the greatest care. Exiger les plus grands ménagements. I could not help thinking that my new acquaintance must have had a voice in most of these arrangements. He looked a reliable officer, no longer very active, and he was seamanlike, too, in a way, though as he sat there, with his thick fingers clasped lightly on his stomach, he reminded you of one of those snuffy, quiet village priests, into whose ears are poured the sins, the sufferings, the remorse of peasant generations, on whose faces the placid and simple expression is like a veil thrown over the mystery of pain and distress. He ought to have had a threadbare black soutane buttoned smoothly up to his ample chin, instead of a frock coat with shoulder straps and brass buttons. His broad bosom heaved regularly while he went on telling me that it had been the very devil of a job, as doubtless, sans doute, I could figure to myself in my quality of a seaman, en votre qualité de marin. At the end of the period, he inclined his body slightly toward me, and I could figure to myself in my quality of a seaman, en votre qualité de marin. At the end of the period, he inclined his body slightly towards me, and, pursing his shaved lips, allowed the air to escape with a gentle hiss. Luckily, he continued, the sea was level like this table, and there was no more wind than there is here. The place struck me as indeed intolerably stuffy and very hot. My face burned as though I had been young enough to be embarrassed and blushing. They had directed their course, he pursued, to the nearest English port, naturellement, where their responsibility ceased. Dieu merci, he blew out his flat cheeks a little, because, mind you, notez bien, all the time of towing we had two quartermasters stationed with axes by the hawsers to cut us clear of our tow in case she... He fluttered downwards his heavy eyelids, making his meaning as plain as possible. What would you? One does what one can. On fait ce qu'on peut. And for a moment he managed to invest his ponderous immobility with an air of resignation. Two quartermasters, thirty hours, always there. Two, he repeated, lifting up his right hand a little and exhibiting two fingers. This was absolutely the first gesture I saw him make. It gave me the opportunity to note a starred scar on the back of his hand, effect of a gunshot clearly, and, as if my sight had been made more acute by this discovery, I perceived also the seam of an old wound beginning a little below the temple and going out of sight under the short gray hair at the side of his head, the graze of a spear or the cut of a saber. He clasped his hands on his stomach again. I remained on board that, that, my memory is going, s'en va. Ah, patna. C'est bien ça, Patna. Merci. It is droll how one forgets. I stayed on that ship thirty hours. You did, I exclaimed. Still gazing at his hands, he pursed his lips a little, but this time made no hissing sound. It was judged proper, he said, lifting his eyebrows dispassionately, that one of the officers should remain to keep an eye open. Pour ouvre l'oeil. 
he sighed idly, and for communicating by signals with the towing ship, do you see, and so on. For the rest, it was my opinion, too. We made our boats ready to drop over, and I also, on that ship, took measures. Enfin, one has done one's possible. It was a delicate position. Thirty hours. They prepared me some food. As for the wine, go and whistle for it, not a drop. In some extraordinary way, without any marked change in his inert attitude and in the placid expression of his face, he managed to convey the idea of profound disgust. I, you know, when it comes to eating without my glass of wine, I am nowhere. I was afraid he would enlarge upon the grievance, for, though he didn't stir a limb or twitch a feature, he made one aware of how much he was irritated by the recollection. But he seemed to forget all about it. They delivered their charge to the port authorities, as he expressed it. He was struck by the calmness with which it had been received. One might have thought they had such a droll find. Troll de trouvaille brought them every day. You are extraordinary, you others, he commented with his back propped against the wall and looking himself as incapable of an emotional display as a sack of meal. There happened to be a man of war and an Indian marine steamer in the harbor at the time, and he did not conceal his admiration of the efficient manner in which the boats of these two ships cleared the patna of her passengers. Indeed, his torpid demeanor concealed nothing. It had that mysterious, almost miraculous, power of producing striking effects by means impossible of detection, which is the last word of the highest art. Twenty-five minutes, watch in hand, twenty-five, no more. He unclasped and clasped again his fingers without removing his hands from his stomach, and made it infinitely more effective than if he had thrown up his arms to heaven in amazement. All that lot, tout ce monde, on shore, with their little affairs, nobody left but a guard of seamen, machin de l'état, and that interesting corpse, cet intéressant cadavre. Twenty-five minutes. With downcast eyes and his head tilted slightly to one side, he seemed to roll knowingly on his tongue the savor of a smart bit of work. He persuaded one without any further demonstration that his approval was eminently worth having, and resuming his hardly interrupted immobility, he went on to inform me that, being under orders to make the best of their way to Toulon, they left in two hours' time. So that, de sorte que there are many things in this incident of my life, dans cet épisode de ma vie, which have remained obscure. Joining us now to talk about this section of the text and provide an article recommendation is Lauren Gargani, Library Director at Maine Maritime Academy. Hi, Lauren. Welcome back. Greetings, Anne. Hello. Thank you. So tell me what great article you have for us today. Okay. So we are not going back quite as far this time. We're only going back to 1994. But this article is by Douglas Kerr and it is called Crowds, Colonialism, and Lord Jim. Ooh, that sounds interesting. What do crowds have to do with this? It's, it's really interesting. And so there's some effort here to give us context of the performance of the colonialist East, as he says. And I'm going to just start by talking about, I'm gonna actually quote the final line in this article because I think it is just a great, it's a great setup. So he says, it remains a question whether Lord Jim itself, fascinating, compelling, hypnotic as we might describe it, is part of the performance as well as a criticism of it. So again, that performance of the colonialist East, when Kerr talks about it, he goes through um, an explanation of, when we talk about crowds, how there was a sense of anxiety of being outnumbered by colonialist uh, forces in the East. And one of the examples he cites is, he says the anxiety about numbering isn't hard to understand in the imperial circumstances. So between 1800 and 1900, the population of India went from about 150 million to 300 million. So at that time in around 1900, you're looking at that being governed by a civil service that has about a thousand administrative officers to 300 million people. Yeah, that's a pretty big difference. It's a huge difference. And so he's saying that, you know, of course, there were enormous military forces backing that. But he says from day to day, 
Colonial authority in the East wasn't sustained by military force, but by its own confidence. And that confidence of colonialism was to be one of the features that most engaged Conrad in the story of Lord Jim. So when he talks about the confidence of colonialism, is that the the confidence that this power is as powerful as it claims to be and not questioning that power? You know, the idea that they have a right to be there, mm-hmm. that they have some kind of sense of, you know, they're, they're enforcing, you know, in their minds, a real sense of superiority over the people who are being colonized. And they are, you know, there are some great examples of the many, many ways those structures are created and reinforced. Um, and, you know, again, that sense of the crowd, um, there's a book published in 1895 in France and then later published in other languages um, by Gustave Le Bon called Psychology of Crowds. And um, so the author of this article is describing this as being really an example of elitist conservatism. And he says that this theory of crowds is really giving a manual for crowd control. This was a new science at the time. He explains that it has some roots in the study of hypnotism. And it seems like in this initial look at how crowds behave and the mentality there, um, there was a comparison to these people being hypnotized. So I believe this is a direct quote from that source. By the mere fact that he forms part of an organized crowd, a man descends several rungs in the ladder of civilization. So there is very, very clear expression of this idea that, you know, you are losing something of your humanity by involving yourself in this crowd. You're all of a sudden being controlled by something. It's as if you're hypnotized, Um, which really, you know, if you're trying to position yourself as the elite um, force that is threatened by a larger crowd um, of, you know, masses that you're you're painting as, you know, somehow losing some of their humanity in just participating in that, that um, maybe fervor. It, it's just fascinating. Um, well, and it sounds like um, if you can convince yourself that somebody is less human when they have joined in an uprising or in... <laughs> kind of a, a large political movement um, or agreed with a lot of people around them, they would be a lot easier to quell that with violence if you don't see yourself as acting against individuals who are human, but just against the masses or the crowd that, um, you know, the, the colonialists, the ones who are in that um, part of, who have that power would maybe even lose a little of their own humanity because they're painting other people as less than human. I think that's a really (laughs) accurate read there. And, you know, there's the sense of, you know, the elite had better understand the psychology of the crowd if they do not wish to be governed by it. So, yeah, absolutely. This, you know, we need to, we need to control how this is being seen and represented. And, um, you know, it's like, as if their belief in their own authority is dependent on believing that the crowd is somehow, um, the the phrase here is collective primitive. It's behavior essentially unconscious in a state of fascination akin to that of hypnosis. If you believe that about the crowd that's opposing you, that you know is only going to help you reinforce your confidence in, in your, the right that you have to be making decisions about their lives. Well, especially that use of the word primitive, along with this dehumanizing people by saying, see, you're part of this group. Yes. Then to also say, and that group is, as individuals, primitives, uh, that seems like just a recipe for um, treating people very poorly um, when you're in that position of power, which, you know, I think that we're seeing that in Lord Jim as we're seeing these um, migrants and pilgrims on board the ship, we see them as um, as a mass, you know, describing how they're covering all of the different decks um, and kind of moving as one. And that is absolutely that kind of same evocative image of the masses, um, while also pointing out their foreignness to Jim and to the other European officers. 
Yes. So I want to, I, I went back to the text because I wanted to share a quotation from chapter three, which might be, you know, a bit back, going back a bit for listeners at this point, but I want to share that and then a passage um, from this article. So the bit from chapter three is describing Jim on the bridge. At such times, his thoughts would be full of valorous deeds. He loved these dreams and the success of his imaginary achievements. They carried his soul away with them and made it drunk with the divine filter of an unbound confidence in himself. There was nothing he could not face. So that unbounded confidence, you know, he believes in himself. This is largely based on daydreams. And, you know, that's that's a problem. But he exudes that confidence, right? Can we can we? Yep. Yeah, he exudes that confidence even when he's proven that he doesn't live up to it in real right. life. That every time there's been a situation that calls for decisive action, he hasn't taken it. Um, and he has ended up following the crowd, um, especially in the abandonment of the ship. You know, there are times that he stands up as an individual, like perhaps facing this inquiry, but he does seem to fall prey to not his ideals, um, which is really interesting. And that part for me as a reader uh, struck home a little closely. I, I think that I'm probably not alone in, you know, imagining different conversations that I'm going to have and imagining different scenarios and how well I'll handle them and how eloquent I'll be and how I'll come out victorious in the end. And that is just so rarely how the situations actually go. And you have to keep a little humility with that. Um, but it's really interesting to hear this comparison and realize that as we're seeing this in ourselves, there is this colonialist, um, perhaps racist toward the group that he's transporting and looking down on um, at times, um, that there may be that in us as readers as well, that we need to be incredibly conscious of. Yes, so this passage from this article, and it is, again, it's fairly long, but I think it's worth including here, um, touches on some of that. And I'll, I'll just let it speak for itself, really. <clears throat> so again, thinking about that confidence that Jim portrays. 19th century crowd theory had developed the idea of the group mind which could be collectively surrendered to a leader more completely than any individual submission. The keynote in Conrad's sumptuous descriptions of the pilgrims on the Patna is faith and belief. This is the religious belief that has sent them on the pilgrimage, of course, but a number of deliberate ambiguities show that what is also at stake is their faith in the white officer and his faultless performance of trustworthiness as he paces above them. They give him their confidence and invest their faith in him because the confidence he exudes in his performance convinces them that he is what he impersonates. They give themselves up to him just as an audience in becoming an audience suspends and surrenders its own power to act. Mm. So yeah, that's to think about here. <laughs> there's a lot to think about there. Um, and as a reader, you know, it makes me wonder, have they actually, do they actually think that about him? Do they think that he's that capable? Um, because we, at least up to this point, um, haven't actually heard from the passengers. Right. We've seen them say something to him. We've seen them through his eyes. Um, but, you know, like when the passenger is asking for water, Jim may interpret that as, see, they see that nothing's wrong, but we as readers don't know if, you know, maybe that person when he came on board said, wow, he does not look capable of, you know, piloting this vessel. Um, you know, maybe there is a lot more going on under there. We've only heard it through uh, Marlowe, through Jim. So there are these two layers of narrators and we always have to ask with any narrator how reliable they are. And even if they're reliable, they're going to have a particular point of view. So it leaves us, you know, without all that much information about the people who are most affected by the events in this book. Yes, it does. 
Wow. Well, as you can tell, this has given me a lot to think about. Oh, I'm glad. <laughs> and as always, we'll be posting the citation and links to this article in our show notes. Um, and I'll be really curious to hear if our listeners um, have other thoughts or different thoughts um, on all of these issues that we're dealing with in this book. It's definitely a rich text, especially with all of this additional literature digging into it. Thank you for the opportunity to discuss this one. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, and we'll see you again next week. Take care. And now we return to this installment of Lord Jim by Joseph Conrad. Chapter 13. After these words, and without a change of attitude, he, so to speak, submitted himself passively to a state of silence. I kept him company, and suddenly, but not abruptly, as if the appointed time had come for his moderate and husky voice to come out of his immobility, he pronounced, Mon Dieu, how the time passes. Nothing could have been more commonplace than this remark, but its utterance coincided for me with a moment of vision. It's extraordinary how we go through life with eyes half shut, with dull ears, with dormant thoughts. Perhaps it's just as well, and it may be that it is this very dullness that makes life to the incalculable majority so supportable and so welcome. Nevertheless, there can be but few of us who had never known one of these rare moments of awakening when we see, hear, understand ever so much, everything, in a flash, before we fall back again into our agreeable somnolence. I raised my eyes when he spoke, and I saw him as though I had never seen him before. I saw his chin sunk on his breast, the clumsy folds of his coat, his clasped hands, his motionless pose, so curiously suggestive of his having been simply left there. Time had passed indeed. It had overtaken him and gone ahead. It had left him hopelessly behind with a few poor gifts, the iron-gray hair, the heavy fatigue of the tanned face, two scars, a pair of tarnished shoulder straps, one of those steady, reliable men, who are the raw material of great reputations, one of those uncounted lives that are buried without drums and trumpets, under the foundations of monumental successes. I am now third lieutenant of the Victorieuse. She was the flagship of the French Pacific Squadron at the time, he said, detaching his shoulders from the wall a couple of inches to introduce himself. I bowed slightly on my side of the table and told him I commanded a merchant vessel at present anchored in Rushcutters Bay. He had remarked her, a pretty little craft. He was very civil about it in his impassive way. I even fancy he went the length of tilting his head in compliment as he repeated, breathing visibly the while, Ah, yes, a little craft painted black, very pretty, very pretty, très coquet. After a time, he twisted his body slowly to face the glass door on our right. A dull town, triste ville, he observed, staring into the street. It was a brilliant day. A southerly buster was raging, and we could see the passers-by, men and women, buffeted by the wind on the sidewalks, the sunlit fronts of the houses across the road blurred by the tall whirls of dust. I descended on shore, he said, to stretch my legs a little, but he didn't finish and sank into the depths of his repose. Pray, tell me, he began, coming up ponderously, what was there at the bottom of this affair, precisely, au juste? It is curious, that dead man, for instance, and so on. There were living men, too, I said, much more curious. No doubt, no doubt, he agreed, half audibly. Then, as if after mature consideration, murmured, evidently. I made no difficulty in communicating to him what had interested me most in this affair. It seemed as though he had a right to know. Hadn't he spent thirty hours on board the Patna? Had he not taken the succession, so to speak? Had he not done his possible? He listened to me, looking more priest-like than ever, and with what, probably on account of his downcast eyes, had the appearance of devout concentration. Once or twice he elevated his eyebrows, but without raising his eyelids, as one would say, the devil. Once he calmly exclaimed, ah, bah, under his breath, and when I had finished, he pursed his lips in a deliberate way and emitted a sort of sorrowful whistle. In anyone else, it might have been on evidence of boredom, a sign of indifference, but he, in his occult way, managed to make his immobility appear profoundly responsive and as full of valuable thoughts as an egg is of meat. 
What he said at last was nothing more than a very interesting, pronounced politely and not much above a whisper. Before I got over my disappointment, he added, but as if speaking to himself, that's it. That is it. His chin seemed to sink lower on his breast, his body to weigh heavier on his seat. I was about to ask him what he meant when a sort of preparatory tremor passed over his whole person, as a faint ripple may be seen upon stagnant water even before the wind is felt. And so that poor young man ran away along with the others, he said, with a grave tranquility. I don't know what made me smile. It is the only genuine smile of mine I can remember in connection with Jim's affair. But somehow this simple statement of the matter sounded funny in French. C'est enfui avec les autres, had said the lieutenant. And suddenly I began to admire the discrimination of the man. He had made out the point at once. He did get hold of the only thing I cared about. I felt as though I were taking professional opinion on the case. His imperturbable and mature calmness was that of an expert in possession of the facts, and to whom one's perplexities are mere child's play. Ah, the young, the young, he said indulgently. And, after all, one does not die of it. Die of what? I asked swiftly. Of being afraid. He elucidated his meaning and sipped his drink. I perceived that the three last fingers of his wounded hand were stiff and could not move independently of each other, so that he took up his tumbler with an ungainly clutch. One is always afraid. One may talk, but... He put down the glass awkwardly. The fear... The fear... Look you, it is always there. He touched his breast near a brass button on the very spot where Jim had given a thump to his own when protesting that there was nothing the matter with his heart. I suppose I made some sign of dissent because he insisted, Yes, yes, one talks, one talks. This is all very fine. But at the end of the reckoning, one is no cleverer than the next man, and no more brave. Brave. This is always to be seen. I have rolled my hump, rule ma boss, he said, using the slang expression with imperturbable seriousness, in all parts of the world. I have known brave men, famous ones. Allez, he drank carelessly. Brave, you conceive in the service, one has got to be. The trade demands it. Le métier veut ça. Is it not so? He appealed to me reasonably. Eh bien, each of them, I say each of them, if he were an honest man, bien entendu, would confess that there is a point. There is a point for the best of us. There is somewhat a point when you let go of everything. Vous lâchez tout. And you have got to live with that truth. Do you see? Given a certain combination of circumstances, fear is sure to come. Abominable funk. Un trac épouvantable. And even for those who do not believe this truth, there is fear all the same. The fear of themselves. Absolutely so. Trust me. Yes. Yes. At my age, one knows what one is talking about. Que diable. He had delivered himself of all this as immovably as though he had been the mouthpiece of abstract wisdom, but at this point he heightened the effect of detachment by beginning to twirl his thumbs slowly. It's evident. Parbleu, he continued. For make up your mind as much as you like, even a simple headache or a fit of indigestion, un derangement d'estomac, is enough to take me, for instance. I have made my proofs. Eh bien, I who am speaking to you once. He drained his glass and returned to his twirling. No, no, one does not die of it, he pronounced finally, and when I found he did not mean to proceed with the personal anecdote, I was extremely disappointed. The more so, as it was not the sort of story, you know, one could very well press him for. I sat silent, and he too, as if nothing could please him better. Even his thumbs were still now. Suddenly his lips began to move. That is so, he resumed placidly. Man is born a coward. L'homme est ne pourtant. It is a difficulty, parbleu. It would be too easy otherwise. But habit, habit, necessity. Do you see? The eye of others. Voilà. One puts up with it. And then the example of others who are no better than yourself, and yet make good countenance. His voice ceased. That young man, you will observe, had none of these inducements, at least at the moment, I remarked. He raised his eyebrows forgivingly. I don't say, I don't say. The young man in question might have had the best dispositions. The best dispositions, he repeated, wheezing a little. I'm glad to see you are taking a lenient view, I said. His own feeling of the matter was, ah, uh, hopeful, and... 
The shuffle of his feet under the table interrupted me. He drew up his heavy eyelids. Drew up, I say, no other expression can describe the steady deliberation of the act, and at last was disclosed completely to me. I was confronted by two narrow gray circlets, like two tiny steel rings around the profound blackness of the pupils. The sharp glance, coming from the massive body, gave a notion of extreme efficiency, like a razor edge on a battle axe. Pardon, he said punctiliously. His right hand went up, and he swayed forward. Allow me. I contended that one may get on knowing very well that one's courage does not come of itself, ne vient pas tout seul. There's nothing much in that to get upset about. One truth the more ought not to make life impossible, but the honor, the honor, monsieur, the honor that is real, that is, and what life may be worth when he got on his feet with a ponderous impetuosity as a startled ox might scramble up from the grass. When the honor is gone, assa, par exemple, I can offer no opinion. I can offer no opinion because, monsieur, I know nothing of it. I had risen, too, and trying to throw infinite politeness into our attitudes, we faced each other mutely, like two china dogs on a mantelpiece. Hang the fellow. He had pricked the bubble. The blight of futility that lies in wait for men's speeches had fallen upon our conversation, and made it a thing of empty sounds. Very well, I said, with a disconcerted smile. But couldn't it reduce itself to not being found out? He made as if to retort readily, but when he spoke he had changed his mind. This, monsieur, is too fine for me, much above me. I don't think about it. He bowed heavily over his cap, which he held before him by the peak, between the thumb and forefinger of his wounded hand. I bowed too. We bowed together. We scraped our feet at each other with much ceremony, while a dirty specimen of a waiter looked on critically, as though he had paid for the performance. Serviteur said the Frenchman. Another scrape. Monsieur, monsieur. The glass door swung behind his burly back. I saw the southerly buster get hold of him and drive him downwind with his hand to his head, his shoulders braced and the tails of his coat blown hard against his legs. I sat down again alone and discouraged, discouraged about Jim's case. If you wonder that after more than three years it had preserved its actuality, you must know that I had seen him only very lately. I had come straight from Samurai, where I had loaded a cargo for Sydney, an utterly uninteresting bit of business, what Charlie here would call one of my rational transactions, and in Samurai I had seen something of Jim. He was then working for De Jong on my recommendation, water clerk. My representative afloat, as De Jong called him. You can't imagine a mode of life more barren of consolation, less capable of being invested with a spark of glamour unless it be the business of an insurance canvasser. Little Bob Stanton, Charlie, here knew him well, had gone through that experience. The same who got drowned afterwards trying to save a lady's maid in the Sephora disaster. A case of collision on a hazy morning off the Spanish coast, you may remember. All the passengers had been packed tidily into the boats and shoved clear of the ship, when Bob sheered alongside again and scrambled back on deck to fetch that girl. How she had been left behind, I can't make out. Anyhow, she had gone completely crazy, wouldn't leave the ship, held to the rail like grim death. The wrestling match could be seen plainly from the boats, but poor Bob was the shortest chief mate in the merchant service, and the woman stood five feet ten in her shoes and was as strong as a horse, I've been told. So it went on, pull devil, pull baker, the wretched girl screaming all the time, and Bob letting out a yell now and then to warn his boat to keep well clear of the ship. One of the hands told me, hiding a smile at the recollection, It was for all the world, sir, like a naughty youngster fighting with his mother. The same old chap said that at least we could see that Mr. Stanton had given up hauling at the gal and just stood by looking at her, watchful-like. We thought afterwards he must have been reckoning that maybe the rush of water would tear her away from the rail by and by and give him a show to save her. We daren't come alongside for our life, and after a bit the old ship went down all of a sudden with a lurch to starboard. Plop. The suck-in was something awful. We never saw anything alive or dead come up. Poor Bob's spell of shore life had been one of the complications of a love affair, I believe. He fondly hoped he had done with the sea forever and made sure he had got hold of all the bliss on earth, but it came to canvassing in the end. Some cousin of his in Liverpool put up to it. He used to tell us his experiences in that line, 
He made us laugh till we cried, and, not altogether displeased at that effect, undersized and bearded to the waist like a gnome, he would tiptoe amongst us and say, "'It's all very well for you beggars to laugh, but my immortal soul was shriveled down to the size of a parched pea after a week of that work.' I don't know how Jim's soul accommodated itself to the new conditions of his life. I was kept too busy in getting him something to do that would keep body and soul together, but I am pretty certain his adventurous fancy was suffering all the pangs of starvation. It had certainly nothing to feed upon in this new calling. It was distressing to see him at it, though he tackled it with a stubborn serenity for which I must give him full credit. I kept my eye on his shabby plodding with the sort of notion that it was a punishment for the heroics of his fancy, an expiration for his craving after more glamour than he could carry. He had loved too well to imagine himself a glorious racehorse, and now he was condemned to toil without honour like a costermonger's donkey. He did it very well. He shut himself in, put his head down, said never a word. Very well, very well indeed, except for certain fantastic and violent outbreaks on the deplorable occasions when the irrepressible Patna case cropped up. Unfortunately, that scandal of the Eastern Seas would not die out, and this is the reason why I could never feel I had done with Jim for good. I sat thinking of him after the French lieutenant had left, not, however, in connection with Dijong's cool and gloomy back shop, where we had hurriedly shaken hands not very long ago, but as I had seen him years before, in the last flickers of the candle, alone with me in the long gallery of the Malabar house, with the chill and the darkness of the night at his back. The respectable sword of his country's law was suspended over his head. Tomorrow, or was it today, midnight has slipped by long before we parted, the marble-faced police magistrate, after distributing fines and terms of imprisonment in the assault and battery case, would take up the awful weapon and smite his bowed neck. Our communion in the night was uncommonly like a last vigil with a condemned man. He was guilty, too. He was guilty, as I had told myself repeatedly, guilty and done for, Nevertheless, I wish to spare him the mere detail of a formal execution. I don't pretend to explain the reasons of my desire. I don't think I could, but if you haven't got a sort of notion by this time, then I must have been very obscure in my narrative, or you too sleepy to seize upon the sense of my words. I don't defend my morality. There was no morality in the impulse which induced me to lay before him Briarly's plan of evasion, I may call it, in all its primitive simplicity. There were the rupees absolutely ready in my pocket and very much at his service. Oh, alone, alone, of course, and if an introduction to a man in Rangoon who could put some work his way. Why, with the greatest pleasure. I had pen, ink, and paper in my room on the first floor, and even while I was speaking I was impatient to begin the letter, day, month, year, 2.30 a.m., for the sake of our old friendship I ask you to put some work in the way of Mr. James So-and-so, in whom, etc., etc., I was even ready to write in that strain about him. If he had not enlisted my sympathies, he had done better for himself. He had gone to the very front and origin of that sentiment. He had reached the secret sensibility of my egoism. I am concealing nothing from you, because were I to do so, my action would appear more unintelligible than any man's action has the right to be. And, in the second place, tomorrow you will forget my sincerity, along with the other lessons of the past. In this transaction, to speak grossly and precisely, I was the irreproachable man. But the subtle intentions of my immorality were defeated by the moral simplicity of the criminal. No doubt he was selfish, too, but his selfishness had a higher origin, a more lofty aim. I discovered that, say what I would, he was eager to go through the ceremony of execution, and I didn't say much, for I felt that in argument his youth would tell against me heavily. He believed where I had already ceased to doubt. There was something fine in the wildness of his unexpressed, hardly formulated hope. "'Clear out. Couldn't think of it,' he said, with a shake of his head. "'I make you an offer for which I neither demand nor expect any sort of gratitude,' I said. "'You shall repay the money when convenient, and—' "'Awfully good of you,' he muttered without looking up. I watched him narrowly. The future must have appeared horribly uncertain to him, but he did not falter— as though, indeed, there had been nothing wrong with his heart. I felt angry, not for the first time that night. The whole wretched business, I said, is bitter enough, I should think, for a man of your kind. It is, it is, he whispered twice, with his eyes fixed on the floor. It was heartrending. 
He towered above the light, and I could see the down on his cheek, the color mantling warm under the smooth skin of his face. Believe me or not, I say it was outrageously heartrending. It provoked me to brutality. Yes, I said, and allow me to confess that I am totally unable to imagine what advantage you can expect from this licking of the dregs. Advantage, he murmured out of his stillness. I'm dashed if I do, I said, enraged. I've been trying to tell you all there is... I've been trying to tell you all there is in it. He went on slowly, as if meditating something unanswerable. But after all, it is my trouble. I opened my mouth to retort and discovered suddenly that I'd lost all confidence in myself, and it was as if he too had given me up, for he mumbled like a man thinking half aloud. One away, one into hospitals, not one of them would face it. They... He moved his hand slightly to imply disdain. But I've got to get over this thing, and I mustn't shirk any of it, or I won't shirk any of it. He was silent. He gazed as though he had been haunted. His unconscious face reflected the passing expressions of scorn, of despair, of resolution, reflected them in turn as a magic mirror would reflect the gliding passage of unearthly shapes. He lived surrounded by deceitful ghosts, by austere shades. Oh, nonsense, my dear fellow, I began. He had a movement of impatience. You don't seem to understand, he said incisively. Then, looking at me without a wink, I may have jumped, but I don't run away. I meant no offense, I said, and added stupidly, better men than you have found it expedient to run at times. He colored all over, while in my confusion I half choked myself with my own tongue. Perhaps so, he said at last. I am not good enough. I can't afford it. I am bound to fight this thing down. I am fighting it now. I got out of my chair and felt stiff all over. The silence was embarrassing, and to put an end to it, I imagined nothing better but to remark, I had no idea it was so late, in an airy tone. I dare say you have had enough of this, he said brusquely, and to tell you the truth, he began to look round for his hat. So have I. Well, he had refused this unique offer. He had struck aside my helping hand, he was ready to go now, and beyond the balustrade the night seemed to wait for him very still, as though he had been marked down for its prey. I heard his voice. Ah, here it is. He had found his hat. For a few seconds we hung in the wind. What will you do after... after... I asked very low. Go to the dogs as likely as not, he answered in a gruff mutter. I had recovered my wits in a measure, and judged best to take it lightly. Pray remember, I said, that I should like very much to see you again before you go. I don't know what's to prevent you. The damned thing won't make me invisible, he said with intense bitterness. No such luck. And then, at the moment of taking leave, he treated me to a ghastly muddle of dubious stammers and movements, to an awful display of hesitations. God forgive him. Me. He had taken it into his fanciful head that I was likely to make some difficulty as to shaking hands. It was too awful for words. I believe I shouted suddenly at him as you would bellow to a man you saw about to walk over a cliff. I remember our voices being raised, the appearance of a miserable grin on his face, a crushing clutch on my hand, a nervous laugh. The candle sputtered out, and the thing was over at last, with a groan that floated up to me in the dark. He got himself away somehow. The night swallowed his form. He was a horrible bungler. Horrible. I heard the quick crunch, crunch of the gravel under his boots. He was running, absolutely running, with nowhere to go to, and he was not yet four and twenty. Thank you for joining us for this installment of Lord Jim. As a reminder, please check our show notes for the link to the text, as well as information on related reading. This episode was read and produced by me, Anne Dyer. Article recommendations and graphics by Lauren Gargani. Special thanks to Emily Baer. Music by Chad Crouch.